0: The Class of 2001 was hailed with a storm of lighting of fury on their entrance and exit from West Point. Graduating 101 days before the tragedy of 9-11, the Class of 2001 served as junior military officers during the initial phases of the War on Terror and increasing positions of influence over the next 20 years. Bound together for four years in school and together in service to our nation and their communities, These are the stories of those graduates as we look through the grave.
1: During this podcast, we'll be speaking with Laura McKenna. As a warning to our listeners, we'll be covering some sensitive subjects related to her personal experiences at West Point, including military sexual assault, also known as MST. The content could be triggering for some. Many men and women have experienced sexual assault and harassment in the military. West Point has never been immune to these challenges. Laura will share her story as she knows it, and we appreciate her willingness to share something deeply personal. We hope her candor will give a listener somewhere the validation that they're not alone and perhaps provide them the confidence to take action if appropriate. On this episode of Through the Gray, we'll be speaking with Laura McKenna. Laura joined West Point from a family with a long lineage of West Pointers. Family stories about the ideals of the military academy and military service echoed throughout Laura's childhood, and her acceptance as a new cadet was the end of that dream and the beginning of her life of service. The idealism of West Point was tarnished by the actions of a few when Laura faced sexual harassment and sexual assault, in her first year at the academy. Laura's grit, family support, and peers helped her turn the corner on her experience and graduate from West Point. But the pain lingered. Laura lived a double life. A life of high performance and high achievement on the outside while struggling with self-doubt and anxiety on the inside. It was only when she was able to be herself and not the person that pain had turned her into that Laura was able to break down that barrier to peace. This is her story. Through the Gray has its first sponsor, Urban Industrial Northwest. Urban Industrial Northwest is owned and operated by my childhood friend, Greg Hostetter. Greg and I grew up playing in the woods and hitting each other with sticks. I joined the military and Greg joined the trades. We both love the outdoors and the Pacific Northwest. Please visit his site and see the amazing work he and his team are creating. Urban Industrial Northwest is a furniture and fabrication company specializing in handcrafted products using heritage lumber deconstructed by architectural salvage companies from structures dating back to the late 1800s to early 1900s. Everything from their powder-coated hardware to their top-selling reclaimed wood desktops are carefully constructed by their team in shop to create one-of-a-kind statement pieces for your home and office needs. Check them out on their Etsy store. Facebook and Instagram or give them a call at 360-703-6936. And mention this ad for a 20% military discount on your order. And to top it off, shipping is free straight to your door nationwide. Urban Industrial Northwest, giving wood a third life from tree to structure to an awesome piece of furniture. Welcome to Through the Gray. We're with Laura McKenna. How are you doing today, Laura?
0: I'm awesome, Joe. How are you?
1: Excellent. First question, why West Point?
0: I knew from a really young age that I wanted to go to West Point. Like the earliest memory that I have of wanting to go to West Point, I think I was five years old. My dad is a West Point grad, he's class of 1968. My grandfather, so my mom's dad, is class of 1945. He was one of very few, I wanna say there were only eight enlisted soldiers who um, came to West Point, now it's fairly common, um, but then it was really unique and he actually got hazed a lot for it. He was a sergeant when he showed up to West Point, uh, my grandfather, uh, class of 45. So it, 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 was, in, it was in my life. Um, my dad served on active duty for 24 years in the Army. We were stationed at West Point multiple times. So I was born there, I was born in Keller Army Hospital The first time that that da was in the history department and then you know we moved around different spots uh in the army as a military brat and then we came back i'm a proud west point middle school bulldog i am an alum Uh, so we were there from 89 to 92 with da again in the history department and while we were there da was uh he was an or for a number of different teams women's basketball crew team so my sister met and married a graduate from the class of 1992. So our, you know, family history of West Point, with, you know, my mom's got one of those, um, you know, black parka jackets with 68 or, or 45, 68, uh, 92, 01. And now my nephew, my godson, affectionately referred to as my oh my godson, is class of 24. Uh, so West Point has always been a part of my life. In many ways, it's kind of my hometown. And so it was, in my mind, a natural spot for me to go. But my parents didn't realize that until my sophomore year in high school, the friends of our family had, you know, they were passing through, came by for brunch, Art and Ginny Mulligan, they're sitting at our kitchen table. And you know, Art just make a conversation, you know, hey, La, you know, you're a sophomore in high school, where are you thinking about going to college? And I looked at him and I said, I'm going to West Point. I hadn't applied or anything yet. That's that confidence, right? That was what we had. You know, when, when you're 15, you you know exactly what's going to happen. It's not like in adulthood where everything is, you know, nothing can be known. Then I was absolutely clear, like, that was what I wanted. My mom actually dropped the plate that she was holding and started crying. <laughs> she did not want me to go to West Point. Um, having been around the women who were cadets while we were stationed there, she knew that West Point was a different environment for women um and and perhaps in many ways an unhealthy environment for women and she didn't want that for me um but you know da was of course ecstatic and you know then you know off we went and uh, moved into the process of of applying um, for west point and then i i got in early decision and so i had applied other places i think i got into most of them but it was pretty irrelevant at that point you know when i Ran down the hall of my high school the morning after I got in saying, I got in, I got in. Everybody knew what that meant and where that was because I had been so vocal that that was where I wanted to be. And My grandfather was the first person that I called the night I got my, you know, my acceptance package um, and he cried, you know, on the phone. So it was really part of, you know, my life. What was it like
1: um, having the dream for so long, having that idea of what you wanted to do for so long? And then it becomes a reality, and you start experiencing it.
0: Combination. It was surreal, because here's this thing that I've wanted to do for so long, and it's actually happening. And then it was also in many ways disillusioning. I had built West Point up to be this, you know magical place. I mean, I'm still something of an optimist and an idealist. And so I truly believed that everybody at West Point. Was there out of a patriotic desire to serve their country, and that everyone was there was ne- that was there was nice. Everyone who was there was you know good, and uh, you know there there are jerks everywhere, uh, and I certainly found that to be the case at West Point, and so I did struggle a bit with disillusionment. I think plebe is hard for everybody, so I am not unique in the fact that plebe was hard for me. I think one of the reasons it was hard for me was not related to the training, but more related to the sexual harassment that I experienced. I had an upperclassman who would not call me Cadet McKenna. He called me piece of ass. That was his name for me. And things like that. I won't go into any more stories there, but there was a lot of it that was really not what I expected. It was not a positive culture of you know of honor and integrity and respect for one another that in a culture that built trust. And so that was very disillusioning for me um, to be in a culture that in many ways um, between being sexually harassed and also sexually assaulted, but in many ways came at me in a way that I think taught me that who I am innately was somehow bad or wrong. So when I gained three pounds, during Beast Barracks, I weighed 115, I was teeny tiny. When I came in, I, won, I weighed 118 at the end of Beast Barracks. And my squad leader told me he was concerned that I was gaining weight and I was getting fat. No, man, I've like put muscle on like I could do pull ups and, you know, all of those sorts of things. And so just those sorts of messages that just me innately was bad and wrong, and that I needed to fix it. And I needed to be in air quotes, what right looks like, But the problem is I was never going to look like what right looked like. And so I think subconsciously what I learned was how to do the best I could to fake it. And that was that was really hard. Um, So combination of like surreal, like, oh, my gosh, this is actually happening. This is amazing. With that conflicting emotion of, oh, my gosh, this is nothing like what I expected, like some serious cognitive dissonance going on.
1: What held you back from reporting or reaching out for help?
0: So, I shared with my sponsor um, that I was um, experiencing. I'd, I wouldn't then have called it harassment. Um, I certainly would not then have called it sexual assault. Um, I didn't know what I thought of it actually, but I, I did share with my sponsor, this is happening. And he reached out to my TAC, and the TAC had a conversation with my company commander, uh, and it got worse. So, I stopped sharing. I stopped. Um, telling anybody uh, about the things that... And, and it wasn't just me. Um, I had female classmates who were experiencing similar things and we sort of learned that you were punished if you brought that sort of thing up. And it was just easier to either try to ignore it or, you know, just endure it. And I think that's a message that that all of us receive. This is not just uh, for for the women. I think the men too in many ways, West Point teaches you that like you can never be enough. Like there are all of these measures of your success. There are all of these criteria against which your value is measured: physically, academically, militarily, you know, mentally, emotionally, socially, uh, all of these things. And no one, like, there's no perfect human being who is going to be perfect and knock it out of the park in all of those areas. So I think all of us sort of walked away with this experience of shame and I'm not good enough. I'm not going to be good enough because I couldn't measure up to all of those metrics. It was sort of a culture of of judgment. And I think part of that too plays into what just sort of like, I just got quiet and what I told myself and what through actually a lot of coaching, I have learned to be able to articulate is that violation was the price. Like that was the message that I received is that the goal that I want to accomplish, this thing that I want to do, whatever it is I'm seeking to create in my life or what success I'm seeking to create, violation is the price I have to pay to achieve that outcome, which of course is is not true and, and in many ways isn't healthy. Certainly something can be really challenging, but it can be challenging in a way that isn't violating. But I couldn't tell the difference, you know, with my little 17-year-old, 18-year-old brain. And so I just learned that, oh, if I'm mentally tough, it means I'm not bothered by those things. And so I worked very hard to be mentally tough. And I just kind of suppressed it, you know, put it in a little box and pretended that it you know, did not affect my future performance or my future relationships or decisions or behaviors, my life, you know, and I don't think I'm alone in that regard.
1: That callous you built. Um, to get you through those rough spots when did when did you receive like the 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 moments of happiness, the moments of joy at West Point that kept you going?
0: Oh, such a good question, definitely around the people that I became close to, and I will also say that sports teams and because of you know the culture on the sports teams, the people on the sports teams um I was on the crew team as a plebe um absolutely loved uh, being on the crew team. Um, I was so little at the time. I'm not little anymore, but I wanted to row. They wouldn't let me row. And so I was a coxswain. Um, but those people, like the guys in my boat and the friends that I made on the crew team, they were really what, you know, what got me through. And then the, my yearling year, I moved to the triathlon team and I'm still friends with, you know, Craig and Kevin and like the folks that, I was close to on the triathlon team. We're still in touch. Uh, Just awesome human beings. And those friendships, those bonds, really pulled me through. Um, I was involved in some faith-based clubs. Those relationships pulled me through. At the end of my plebe year, I was in the car, like my parents had picked me up and we're driving away. And I told my parents that I didn't wanna go back. And both of my parents were so accepting of that. Like I am so fortunate. I have totally unconditionally loving parents, like they are awesome and I'm very fortunate in that regard. They're amazing. And so my mom, of course, is relieved <laughs> and was immediately like, okay, great, so, you know, right? Like, we can look at the other place, you could go to Duke, you could go to William and Mary, you know, you also got into UVA, like you definitely, you know, she's totally in favor. But you know, my dog who knew that this really was my heart and it was what I wanted to do I had not, I still have not shared with my parents that I was sexually assaulted at West Point as a, as a plea by a first in my company, still haven't shared that with them. I, and I certainly did not share it then, but Da took a different approach and he reminded me of who I am and why I wanted to go there in the first place. And I don't remember exactly what he said, but that was the essence of the discussion is let's remember why you wanted to be there. Does, is that still there? Yes. It is, and it was. And then he said, okay, you love the field stuff, right? I was a hard charger. I was, you know, I was that kind of a, you know, wanted to be, you know, rough and tough, um, you know, sort of a hard charging cadet. And so he said, just go to the field, go to Buckner, do Buckner. He loved Beast, and I did. I I was weird. I loved Beast. I loved all the field time. I loved the bayonet assault course, like I was a weirdo. And he knew that. And so he just reminded me of that. Go to Buckner and if you, even after Buckner, you decide that you don't want to stay, then okay and, and we'll, we'll do what's next. We'll, you know, we'll find what's next for you and we'll support you 100%. So I took that advice and I went to Buckner and I will tell you pretty much the Army football team saved my experience at West Point, as funny as that sounds. (laughs) I happened to be, you know, little, right? Little 118 pound Laura. I don't know how this happened. I happened to be assigned to one of, I happened to be assigned to like one of the football like companies and they, I don't know if they still do it this way, but they would put like all of the athletes that needed more food, like all the, all the big boys They'd put them all in the same organization because logistically they were easier to feed. So I don't know how this happened. <laughs> I had an eating disorder well, as a plebe, right? So so at recognition, I weighed 98 pounds. And I think that's just another manifestation of the stress that I was under because of the environment that, that we were all in. And that's just how it manifested for me. I think it manifested differently for different folks. But I felt so like out of control and there were so little... That I had that I had any power over even my own body and, and the way people treated me um, you know based on those violations I was experiencing. I've always been a very disciplined person and so that I could control. I could control how disciplined I am around this thing, which was food. And so I, I didn't eat. I, I was anorexic and that was that was the thing that I could control. Um, and so you know 98 pounds at recognition. And maybe that's why, maybe somebody somewhere made a connection and was like, for the love of God, put this teeny tiny girl, which I'm not that teeny tiny. I was just, you know, I I needed to put some weight on, put this, put this girl with a company that they're going to feed her more and, and where that culture of being able to eat, being permitted to eat would be okay because she was, you know, in a squad, in a Buckner squad with offensive and defensive linemen, like it was me and you know seven offensive defensive linemen, and then another kid named Trevor, who I adore, from upstate New York. He you know he'd grown up on a dairy farm, and he and I were like almost the same size. And then you know seven linemen, um, and so we got so much food. And these guys never treated me any differently. I was a member of their squad. I was a member of their team. And it was fundamentally different from how I had experienced my academic year company. There was nothing different about me. I wasn't different because I was a girl. I wasn't different because I was smaller than them. They had no reason to think or believe, or, or they acted like they didn't have any reason to think or believe, that I couldn't do everything that they could do. And so I got to carry the 60, just like they carried the 60. And I would carry the 249, just like they would carry the 249. They treated me like one of their own. Like I was their sister. I was part of their family. And that experience made me decide I could stay at West Point. Those big boys from the Army offensive and defensive lines made me feel like a member of a team, which is what the Army is. We're team teams. Um, And so that fundamentally changed my experience at West Point and made me decide that I could stay.
1: When you went back to the academic year, and you, and you left that, that team at Buckner, had you changed? Had the condition changed?
0: Oh, What was that next question. year like? Yeah, um, I think neither and both. So I think that experience made enough of a shift in me that I could approach the challenges being back in my academic year company that I could not have survived, um, overcome, without that experience. So yes, I definitely think there was a shift in me. I also think that some of the firsties that had perpetuated that culture in our academic year company um, left. And so the culture in the company was different. Um, you know, the the cows that, that then became firsties, they led the organization differently. And, and I mean, we know, having been part of organizations, having led organizations, that The leader really sets the tone and the organization adopts the personality of the leader. And um, we had great company commanders that year. We had great first sergeants that year. Um, We had great platoon leaders and great platoon sergeants. And um, so I was a team leader under a great squad leader and under a great platoon sergeant. Um, And so it was just, it was a different experience. So yes, to both. um, And also, I think there were... I had established a paradigm my plebe year that actually I did not even begin to understand, unpack, overcome, and change until much, much later. Um, actually, not until I got out of the army in 2014 and kept bumping up against you know limiting beliefs um, or relational issues or feelings that I didn't understand that were interfering with my ability to transition from the Army and sort of adopt a new identity as a veteran in the corporate world. Um, I, I think that really is when I finally like opened my eyes to the effect that those experiences in my plea beer had actually had on my life. So yes and no. Really good question.
1: The change after Buckner and and, and that new perspective as well as your positive experiences in 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 triathlon and and uh, crew. How was the rest of your time at West Point?
0: Sort of a blur, which is weird. Um, you know, I have highlights. Like, I think my my favorite experience um, from my first year was I played on the women's flag football team, and man, I I loved those those friendships, those women um, that were on that team with me. That you know. We're still in touch. We might not be close friends, um, but we're still in touch. Like that was such a highlight of that experience. And then, you know, being a history major, I love to be in a history major. Um, and, you know, I'm a self-proclaimed nerd, totally a nerd. Um, and so I really dug into my studies. I struggled a lot with, you know, with the math and the sciences. Um, I don't know how I I even passed statistics uh it, you know yearling year no idea which is funny because when i took statistics in grad school i got an a and i don't know why that is like why was it so hard for me then who knows man who knows um but but yeah i the rest of the time was sort of just a blur of like academics and um you know challenges and you know retreat experiences that i went on with the faith based groups that i was in and know I I had a boyfriend as a cadet um, who I eventually married Um, and you know just those sorts of experiences I was very into my academics so much so that I added extra history courses to try to bump my GPA to overcome the effects of like you know math and chemistry Um, so yeah it was really a mix but um, but also sort of a blur which is strange like how is I not fully present for for more of that i'm not sure i you know there's so much that um you know i remember and then so much that i actually don't remember um i distinctly remember as a battalion commander you know we were in formation one day and i drew my saber and the scabbard also came out with my saber and you know flew across the area because i was in bradley barracks i was i graduated out of a2 so as the first battalion second regiment <laughs> commander and i remember that moment like distinctly like oh my gosh i can't believe that just happened what do i do now do i go get it do i not? Like what happens now? And I was just frozen in that moment of oh my god, i can't believe that just happened. <laughs> What's going to happen now? Uh and thank god my my sergeant major Alex Gallo picked it up and and handed it to me in the mess hall. So it was like little moments like that like like playing on the women's flag football team. I have distinct memories from that, but then like the day-to-day stuff, no idea, man. It's just a blur.
1: When you look back, um how much of your West Point time is negatively impacted by that that those experiences of the police
0: I think so much which is really that that makes me sad um I was at a class reunion and one of my female classmates and I were just walking to the mess hall we had not been close friends as cadets and she she brought that up she said you know I, I really feel like everything we experience as women separated us from one another like it's like we were all working so hard to gain access to the the main group and and we all felt like outsiders individually as as women cadets and and I I was a woman a woman cadet I am a woman so maybe that was also an experience that that the men had that you were also just trying to gain access to like the inner group where there was belonging and acceptance and respect and success um But she shared with me, like, we felt so much like those outsiders that we didn't focus on bonding enough with one another because we were so focused on just achieving that outcome instead of really, like, being there for each other. And I really resonated with that when when she shared that because I felt very lonely as a cadet. I remember feeling very alone and very disconnected even from my other female classmates. And to learn that I was not alone in having felt that way was huge for me and and for her. And she and I have talked about it since then. Um, And now, you know, we are very deliberately building community within our class, within our women classmates Um, and, you know, and across West Point women, you know, in general and across, you know, just connecting into the Long Green Line which is why I love that you have a podcast like this one. This is so powerful. But I really feel like what I experienced as a plebe the sexual harassment, the sexual assault, it taught me to believe something about myself and about my environment that was not necessarily true. And it created a barrier between me and the humans around me. And I regret that. That it makes me really sad. I wish I had, you know, regret is a silly thing, but you know, if I could go back, I, I I wish I had gotten help for those experiences to to sort through them then, so that I could have had healthy, happy, long lasting friendships. Um, you know, from my cadet experience, Um, I don't think. I mean, I had women in my life who I was close to, who I respected. came to me and said like I don't know why you're you're dating this guy I don't think he's right for you I don't think he really values you I don't think you guys are a right fit for each other and that was absolutely spot-on and and true and yet I married him anyway um, because I didn't I I wasn't in a place mentally and emotionally where I could have even received that message from them so I do think it it fundamentally affected my life um, and definitely affected um, and maybe overshadowed the rest of my experience as a cadet at West Point.
1: It's it's a hard thing to do, um, and you see it um, in some high working, high 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 uh, performing organizations where they have to let down their walls and their personal barriers in order to achieve success, to have that that radical openness. Yeah, and absolutely. you see it sometimes with football. You see it sometimes with uh, high level sports because there's so much pain involved with being good, whether it's conditioning, whether it's strength. Yeah. Um, and that trust is built there uh, and, it, and those barriers are ripped down. And I think you saw a glimpse of that when you were with, you with your Buckner squad. But I think sometimes you build those yeah. walls up and you it holds you back from being as good as you could be. And a lot of cadets, um, for fear of showing their weaknesses, don't let down that wall and they don't maximize their potential.
0: I totally agree. I think you've nailed it. And I I think, I know that that right there, what you just so beautifully stated and so accurately captured is the reason I am a coach now and I have a coaching practice because there is so much pain or or even maybe not pain for people who maybe did not experience um, trauma, but there is conditioning that has taught us that we're supposed to be a certain way that I should do this or that, but it's not really aligned for us. And it keeps us from performing optimally. It keeps us from achieving our potential and really making the impact in the worlds that we were put on earth to make. And so that's what I do now as a coach. That's, a, you know, a, a foundational aspect of my practice is this community of veteran women who are, are bonded to one another or creating a space where we can be vulnerable and we can talk about those hard things, that, that conditioning we experienced, maybe the trauma we experienced, the things that we put walls around that are keeping us from being at our best and really optimally contributing. But we need that bond. We need community. We need the other people to create that safe space for us to, to be able to open that up and really dig in to the things that made us do what we do now and, you know, affected how we think and behave and affected what we decide. Um, It's absolutely huge. You're totally spot on.
1: you become a military police officer. And at the time, it's one of the few branches where you had um, combat arms-like requirements and you had mixed genders working side by side. Um, uh, men, women, soldiers, uh, doing complex tasks together. Did you still see and feel those walls as a leader in that type of organization?
0: So you broke up a little bit. I'm going to ask you to repeat that last part of the question. Did I see,
1: did you feel that imaginary wall mm. or was it able to go down because the difficulty of the tasks you had to do together with your soldiers?
0: Mm. Also a yes and no, um, I went into the MP Corps because you know, I, I thought I was you know, rough and tough, and um, I thought I was this hard-charging, you know, tough, steely-eyed you know, warrior, and that was what I wanted to be, and uh, that was the branch that, as you said, uh, where women were doing um, you know, combat-like tasks, and so that's where I, I wanted to be. The MP Corps at the time also had the highest percentage of women of any branch in the Army, at the time, I'm not sure what the statistic is now, but then it was about 20%. And so, just having more women around and having a culture, much like I described with my Buckner squad, where for the most part, everybody was doing what everybody was doing. We were all responsible for the same battle drills. So, everybody had to do the battle drill where we, you know, mount, dismount, mount a Mark 19. an M1114 Humvee. We all had to do that regardless of gender. Um, And so we all had, you know, the metal tasks were the same, regardless of what your gender was, which was very cool. And so you're right in, yes, being in that culture where it was a non-thing. It wasn't even a stated expectation that you were going to do everything that your male counterparts were doing, because it was like it was an underlying expectation; it didn't have to be said. It was it was a non thing. It was just part of the culture, which was which was awesome. And it did, in some ways, make it possible for me to to show up as my best self. Um, and and definitely, I saw that uh, with the women around me. And then the no part of the answer is twofold. the The army still generally had, and I think has a culture around you're supposed to be this one thing. There's an archetype for what right looks like. There's a leader archetype. And frankly, that leader archetype doesn't look like a five foot five, hundred pound woman. Um, that leader archetype still looks a lot now, and I don't hold this against him, looks a lot like my hot husband who is 6'2", you know, broad shoulders, lean, um, you know, still has a six-pack like the man is a warrior. And he actually is. I mean, he deployed five times. He, you know, retired from the Army, spent over 20 years as military police. Um, so, I mean, he he really is that leader archetype. Um, and I don't hold that against him. He's a good-looking dude. And, and I embrace that quite physically, you know, and and philosophically. Um, but but I do think that we could make that leader archetype like broader and bigger um, I am a huge fan of the ampersand I am a huge fan of the and that the I would like to see the archetypal leader Be someone who is both hard and soft someone who is mentally tough and also Interpersonally empathetic and gentle. I think there are, there's a lot of and that we could make room for that didn't exist then, doesn't exist now, perhaps um, in the army. Um, and I'm not saying it's a bad thing if someone looks like that leader archetype, like that's awesome. I think we could simply make that, that archetype bigger and broader and not just more inclusive, but um, more holistic. I think we would all be better leaders if we weren't so focused on just trying to be what we're supposed to be and I that existed then and I definitely still operated under that archetype of oh I'm supposed to do this and say that and so I'm going to do this and say that because I'm supposed to Um, even if that's not necessarily aligned with who I really am as a leader um, and as a human.
1: As you gained more experience As an officer and as a leader, that split self of 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 who you were versus who you thought you had to be—what happened to it?
0: I would say it it became somewhat dysfunctional. Um, And you know, I will, you know, this is in in many ways embarrassing to share, hard to share. um, That I was a top lock officer who also really was struggling in my personal life. I was, you know, I was that hard charger who also felt like a disaster most of the time. I mean, I I felt stressed and chronically overwhelmed and pulled in so many directions. And I felt like everywhere I turned, there was someone that I was failing. If I gave myself fully to being an officer, I was failing my children. And if I gave myself fully to being a mom, then I was failing my soldiers. And so, just being constantly pulled in those different directions, um, I was so stressed. Um, and that manifested in um, withdrawal in some ways. Like, I cut myself off from friendships that I actually really wanted and needed. Um, in other ways, um, you know, I mean, I turned to alcohol a lot um, just to manage stress. Or, to earn approval, I'm I'm embarrassed to share um, because you know social drinking was a thing when I was stationed in Korea. Um, I was going through a really hard time. Um, I was highly dysfunctional, highly self-destructive, I would say. And I, you know, I ex- I had a, a faith experience that transformed me. Um, I had a you know I was I was in the midst of moving on from a life experience. I was going through a divorce. Um, you know, there was just a lot going on. I was in a really dark place and I decided one day that I didn't want to drink anymore because it was just, it was dysfunctional. It wasn't, it wasn't helping me. Um, and it was getting out of hand and I had to hide it. So I would go to bars because that's where no, I lost good. you
1: for, I lost you for just a bit. Um, okay. So, um, you were talking about social drinking and you were talking about, uh, you hit that, that critical point. Yes. There you go.
0: So I was in, I think just a self-destructive phase, a, a dysfunctional phase. I was in many ways not okay, which is funny because I was a top block officer, uh, <laughs> for during this period of my life, I earned a top block OER rating. So I was still performing at work. Um, but you know, I felt like my personal life was was in shambles and I felt like a failure and I felt worthless. And I was turning to alcohol and, and sort of, um, you know, that sort of social therapy, if you will, in that destructive phase. Um, and I, I had a, a, just a transformational experience. I, I, I sort of woke up. I had an epiphany that this is not who I am. This is not who I want to be. I had a faith transformation experience during that time that, that changed my whole life and, and the whole future trajectory of my life. And I decided, okay, I don't want to drink anymore. I'm going to get back into fitness, which has always been a source of stress relief um, and fun and, you know, and endorphins and dopamine and happiness for me. So I stopped drinking and I had to hide it because it was such a social faux pas to not drink. So um, as funny as it sounds, and, and I'm embarrassed to admit that I was in that dark self-destructive place. And I'm also too embarrassed to admit that I wasn't strong enough. To just say to the people around me like hey I've decided not to drink and it's okay I felt so much pressure and so much need for approval that I was ordering Shirley temples and I would just go up to the bartender and be like hey I need you to look I need to make it look like a vodka cranberry can you can you do that like a vodka sprite with like a splash of cranberry and the bartenders were all really cool about it and they were like you got it um, I will make you a Shirley temple that looks like a vodka cranberry because that was socially acceptable um, and, you know, what does that say, one, what does that say about me, um, you know, and, and my own weakness in, in that time, um, but what does that also say about the culture of the organization that I was in, that I didn't have the space um, to say, I'm not going to drink anymore because it's dysfunctional, it's become dysfunctional for me in my life. Um, at that time also, I did have a close, a small group of close friends who really pulled me through that um and they in our little group they did not care whether i was drinking or not and so there was still that small group um of good friends who supported you know hey i'm going to start training for triathlons again um so i'm not going to stay out until 2 a.m. you know getting shitfaced because i'm going to do a brick workout in the morning and i need to be ready for that and um, they got it, and they they supported that. So I think it really does come down to people in both ways. It's the people that create the toxic social pressures, and it's the people that create the space for healing and transformation and uh, moving forward uh, and creating alignment in your life.
1: Leaving. I can't South even remember Korea. what
0: the question was the, the, you know that, that I was answering, but yeah.
1: Leaving South Korea and going to West Point, and you've started this journey. What was the impact of going back as an instructor to West Point and helping you continue on with, with this journey that you started?
0: Oh, it was huge. So I feel like there's a clear divider in the chapters of my life. Like I had my life um, pre-Korea and, and in Korea, and then I had my life grad school and forward. And I, in many ways, I feel like the real me started to show up um, in June of 2009 when I started grad school. And it's been, you know, such a positive, healthy, um, you know, journey. God, it's such an overused cliche word, but I'm going to use it anyway. Uh, You know, journey towards alignment, um, you know, since then. Going back to teach was absolutely amazing. And seeing West Point from such a different perspective, I think facilitated a lot of healing for me. I also was put in a position where I could create the culture that I wanted to see, and I could also mentor both male and female cadets, men and women, um, in ways that I I, I think, I hope, um, impacted their lives, and, and I hope in positively impacted the Army and the people that those now captains are leading uh, in the Army today. It was very cool being back at West Point. Tell me through what you did. Yeah, so I was in the Department of Physical Education, which everybody thinks is just a haze. Um, but no, no, we really are using physicality. We're using sports and physical training as the means by which to teach personal and organizational leadership. And that was how I saw it. It was an opportunity... I taught survival swimming and combatives and then I had some lifetime sports. I taught strength development, I taught skiing, and I taught judo um, as my sort of extracurricular um, instructor courses. And so if you look at being physical, I mean combat is physical, being in the army is physical, and being physical in a way that, you know, empowers you to execute your mission, that requires a mental skill set. And so being able to teach cadets that mental skill set of mental toughness and learning, being willing and able to learn new skills, being patient with yourself while you're learning a new skill, um, overcoming fear, managing fear, doing it afraid, learning how to uplift and encourage other cadets. Um, Some of my favorite sections that I taught were the ones where the cadets were cheering for each other during the different, you know, survival gates and survival events, um, and I thought that was really cool when I got to see that. I feel like my army career um, had interwoven with it. Motherhood was really interwoven with my military career, and you know, I, I tell the story of you know going to the flight line and I would, I would carry my, my flight bag and my breast pump because I went through flight school with a four-year-old um, and an infant on the breast. Um, and that was just the reality of my life. I think for, for women, maybe for, for many military parents, but my experience has been that this is mostly for women, that um, there's an intersection of your personal and professional life. There is no separation because, you know, you're bringing your personal self with you to the field. You know, we have our periods, even when we're in the field, there's an intersection of my personal and professional life. It's not personal that I'm talking about this. It's something we have to figure out professionally, bringing my breast pump with me to work where there's no space for me to pump. And, you know, I have to just curl up on the floor of a Vietnam era, you know, flight school bathroom, because there just isn't any other place for me to do that there's that intersection. And it was very cool as an instructor at West Point to be able to show my cadets that there's also an intersection of their personal and professional lives. And to show them also what it looks like to have a woman leader that is their instructor, is their leader that they respect, that they're asking for mentorship, that that's not weird. It's not, it's not weird to have a woman leader in your organization who's also a mom. Um, And so that was just, those were some really, really neat experiences. And so you have that,
1: that, that reinforcing experience um, there at West Point. What drove the decision uh, to leave the military?
0: Absolutely. My family drove the decision to leave the military. Um, 100% my children. Um, It was for my children that I got out. Um, Yeah, that's probably a shorter answer to that question, but it just... My kids didn't want me to deploy again. Um, They were really tired of moving. Um, It was really, really hard on my family life to be in the Army, and that wasn't something that I wanted for us anymore. I wanted us to have a calm, predictable, consistent family routine. I wanted my kids to have a hometown. I wanted some normalcy for my children and for my family life. And we had not experienced that uh, in the military. I, I think perhaps we could have, you know, my husband, our, my husband and I are coming up on our 11 year anniversary. And you know, he talks all the time about how much he regrets that I got out of the army. He was so looking forward to being my FRG leader. And he was so looking forward to being the support that I needed from a spouse while on active duty, that I didn't have, um, you know, for most of my time in the army, I was a single mom. Whether I was geographically a single mom or, you know, legally and literally a single mom, uh, and that was really, really hard on all of us, on me, on the kids. And I, I didn't. I was tired of it, and my kids were tired of it, and we wanted something different for our life than that stress and, you know, craziness and inconsistency and lack of predictability.
1: What was the transition like um, to go from the military and and the stress and the craziness and then have that kind of hope?
0: So to answer your question about what was the transition like out of the military, I have to tell you, and Joe, I feel like so much of this has been, you know, emotional and, you know, maybe a little bit of like doom and gloom. Um, but my transition from the military was awful it was terrible <laughs> and it's it's part of why i was i am so passionate about equipping and empowering veterans who are transitioning to the civilian world because it was awful i mean i i would have nervous breakdowns on my drive to work panic attacks in the parking lot i had to talk myself into the building it was oh my god it was so terrible so so let me tell you about this I realized, you know, and this is now in hindsight, that so much of my identity and my sense of self-worth were founded on the fact that I was an army officer or that I served in the military and that I was a mom. You know, those were the foundations of my identity. Um, And so when that changed, I sort of went into this like identity crisis, like, and you know, I was having lunch with a a friend of mine, also a West Point woman, um, maybe a month ago now. And she said something so profound that captures how I felt that I couldn't have articulated at the time that I have spent my entire adult life just doing what I'm supposed to do. I've just been doing what somebody else has told me I should. I, I, if given the option, I don't know what I would choose for myself because I don't really know who I am. Like if you ask me, who are you? All I would know to tell you is who the world has told me I'm supposed to be,
1: or what you've done. Like
0: wow, and that is how I that is how I felt when I transitioned from the military. Is um, I really I felt like I was leaving a tribe and was now like tribeless. Um, even though like my military experience had been in many ways um, dysfunctional and unhealthy, it still was like the root of who I am and, and who I was. Um, and I I had a really hard time like adapting socially to civilian life. Although I don't think any of us ever go back to being civilians. I think we are in the military and then we are veterans. I don't think any of us are, are ever civilians. Um, but definitely the transition to the corporate world, man, that was not a language that I knew how to speak. Like I was... I was i felt lost i felt so alone uh and um and just you know stressed so but that also and and this is i think just awesome and and such a great great thing that we can take those experiences where we realize oh my gosh my identity and sense of self-worth are founded on these things and now these things are either different or they've gone away entirely. Now I get to choose a new identity. I get to decide who I am and what I wanna do with my life. That's an incredibly painful experience, but so much goodness can come out of that crisis um, and out of that stress of the transition and this, this huge shift. So So now with that clarity that oh that's why I'm so stressed the F out is I don't really know who I am anymore without that community and that identity now I get to shape this new thing Um, now I get to decide and know and make decisions based on what is really aligned for me and I get to use my talents my spiritual giftings my skill set my experiences my passions in a way that is aligned with the impact that I want to make in the world and what I want for my day-to-day life, what I want um, for my relationships and, um, you know, really my sense of purpose. And I would not have come into that alignment without the, you know, complete total breakdown of and just, you know, awful experience of transitioning out of the military. So, um, you know, we think of alignment as being this like, you know, fun, sort of easy thing. Like, no, it's, it requires grit and it requires, you know, the mental toughness to not just move into, all right, now I'm going to go to this thing and and now I'm going to move on to what this next set of people tells me I'm supposed to be, but I'm going to, I'm going to decide for myself at this point, who I am. I'm going to learn who I am and who I always was. I'm going to deal with the trauma and the pain and the conditioning. I'm gonna decide whether that conditioning is actually true. Do I believe things that are not true, that are forming my experience of the now? Um, So yeah, it sucked, man, it was terrible. Um, That being said, it has created some awesome stuff um, in my life since then. I went through one of those, uh, I went through Orion, you know, one of the, like, jmo transition companies i was a major when i was getting out um and so they placed me in a spot that was like not a good environment for me at all like not it wasn't toxic it just wasn't what i was meant to be doing um and i felt out of i was a fish out of water from day one i was out of place um but had i not experienced that i wouldn't have realized um that oh no i have this specific set Of talents that I am meant to use in the world Um, I think as army officers we are so versatile in our skill set that we're like yeah I can do literally anything and we can but we lose sight of the fact that our operating system is still consistent even if I'm doing logistics or if I'm doing operations like I was a brigade s3 planner and I was a brigade logistics officer and I was an adjutant in doing personnel stuff. Like I've led people as a platoon leader, as a company commander. I've done all of these things, but I was doing that within this operating system that has, you know, sort of a code of behavior and, and an underlying set of values. There's none of that when you transition to the corporate world. Like there's none of that consistency in the operating system. Um, and so it's, it's very different. And you realize like, oh, I could be a generalist and good at all of this, but I have these specific gifts and I want to operate in my zone of genius, not just in my zone of excellence or in my zone of competence, but I want to do what I'm uniquely equipped to give to the world. And I want to contribute in this way. And it's very cool.
1: How long did it take you to get there?
0: Several years, several years. Yeah. So I would say my first two years um, out of the army were really just um, you know gnashing of teeth and a whole lot of crying, <laughs> a whole lot of crying. Um, and um, then I, I went to work to solve the problem. Um, I engaged with uh, multiple coaches um, who helped me to, to realize why I do what I do um, and why I am experiencing the world right now the way I was experiencing the world. At that time it was because of those beliefs that I held about myself and the world that I was perpetuating um, that I didn't know I could I could choose differently I could create differently um, and I could live in alignment with who I really am um, so yeah it, it did take it took several several years um, I would say probably upwards of five or six um, and then you know, recently, so 2020 was when I founded my own coaching practice um, for alignment coaching. Um, prior to that, I worked with an amazing organization called Talentism um, as an executive clarity coach. Um, and, you know, that was really a formative experience, um, you know, for me, uh, both honing my skill set as a coach, but also coming into that awareness for me. Um, and, and, you know, moving into my own personal alignment.
1: At, at the end of that transition and the movement into this new um, opportunity, how do you define success going forward?
0: Oh, that's so good. Such a great question. So success for me looks like I have clarity. I feel bonded as a member of a community. And, I, you know, I am, I am socially healthy. I have friends that I'm close to. Um, that I love, that are close to me. Um, I feel like I belong, um, you know, within a community. I have energy. Um, Also through that process um, of what I described, I hardcore had a burnout experience. I mean, my body just like stopped functioning. Um, And I had had several health issues while I was on active duty. But after transitioning from the army, it was like my body, you know, hashtag just no, you know, to me um and i ha- you know i had chronic fatigue i i never had any energy and we're talking about like debilitating levels of low energy um you know i had a hormone imbalance i had leaky gut i had gut health issues and digestive problems i had multiple chronic inflammatory disorders um that just absolutely destroyed my health and my energy and you think like as a dpe instructor right i'm supposed to be like the pinnacle of of health, supposed to be, right? There it is, the pinnacle of health and fitness. And so I didn't want to tell anybody that I was struggling the way that I was struggling with my health and with my energy because that would have been inconsistent with what I'm supposed to be. Um, but I, I burned out physiologically, like physically my, my health was a disaster during those several years after I transitioned from the army. Um, and so a big part of success now is being healthy. Um, and and so I have wellness practices, you know, I eat a certain way. I exercise. I'm, you know, I'm a CrossFitter. I love to work out. I am people laugh at me because I'm so deliberate and, and diligent about sleep. Like do not text me after 8 p.m. man, I'm already in bed. But I get up at 4, 415. Because um, that's just how that's that's the rhythm that I want. Um, and that's that's what I know that I need. And so honoring that is what success, you know, looks like for me. So it's that clarity, it's you know, it's community, it's energy, and then it's, you know, what I have said, like using my gifts and talents and, and my skill set and my experiences in a way that makes a positive impact is huge for me like that that's the definition of success I I want to use the talents that my creator my creator invested in me um to you know to get my creator a return on that investment Um, and make a difference in not just in my life but in other people's lives like I want to love my life while also making a difference like that's success
1: as we wrap this up what is the main point you want to communicate to the class about your experience um both in the military and at West Point? Uh, going forward.
0: I think the number one thing, the first thing that comes to mind, and and I think the top of my heart, is we need each other. When you and I were talking before, you shared that all of our experiences have been so different, our stories are different, but they rhyme. We have a connectedness that I really want to see us embrace, not just as a class, but as fellow West Pointers, um, as military service members, as veterans, I really think we need each other. Um, I could not have come into my own personal alignment without the help and love and support of other people. Um, one of whom is my sister, and you know, during that sort of self-destructive period, she quite literally took me by my shoulders and shook me and said, "Like this is not you. You are not." negative and hostile and angry. The sister that I have is cheerful and annoyingly optimistic. Like you are annoyingly cheerful um, and positive and, you know, dorky and nerdy. This is not you. You have to choose to be you and not what this pain has turned you into. And that's another human coming to my life. And I'm not kidding. She quite literally took me by my shoulders, Joe, and shook me. And, you know, sometimes we need that. But mostly we just need like a hug and a high five and a real conversation. Not like a, yeah, how do you like Arizona? Oh, how's, you know, the Pacific Northwest? Like, no, we need like real conversations with one another. Um, hardcore, we, we need each other. Because there was a lot of joy in our military careers but there was also a lot of dysfunctional conditioning, and there was also some trauma um, and combat experiences that um, hurt us, and and we need each other for that healing, and we need each other for the next phase of our lives. Like, I really feel like, like I am, this is so cliche, uh, but like I've just started the best of my life, like within the past several years, the best of my life just started. Um and I think that like we we could create that for one another. Um that just because you got out of the army, your life's not over. Like your maybe your life has just started. Like this new chapter could be just as amazing as the last one or it could be more amazing than the last one and we need each other to, you know, with those bonds and those friendships and the relationships um to help each other create that.
1: You just uh made me think about a great book. Um... That I read recently um, from Strength to Strength, and it talks about that transition in your life where somewhere around forty, um, your ability to physically push through difficulty um, and and, mm. and and muscle your way through doesn't exist anymore, and you have to think more deliberately and to continue to have that new redefined success, it has to be through relationships with other people, empowering. Yes. training and enabling. And if you don't accept that, that if you continue to struggle and you continue to hustle, you're, you're fighting against the odds. Great, great book.
0: Yeah. I will check it out because that's, that really resonates. Um, you know, our, our bodies can do it for so long, but you know, I think you're right. I don't think it's just an age thing. I think it's also a wisdom thing um, that it is an age thing around like, you know, physiologically what we can continue to do and how hard we can continue to push. But I also think that there's a wisdom that comes from, you know, now having lived a good portion of of life and seen a lot of things and a maturity that not only can I not go 100 miles an hour with that high RPM, but I also kind of don't want to. Like we want to be now, we have to be now very intentional and deliberate about that which we give our attention and our energy. And we, we absolutely need relationships. And like our environment is so important for being able to create that. And the people in our environment is a critical component. Yeah, spot on, man.
1: Again, thank you very much today, Laura. Uh, and thank you for sharing your story.
0: Of course. Thank you so much for asking me to share. I'm I'm really excited to be here.
1: All right. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to Through the Gray. If you like this episode, please give us five stars and follow our podcast. It helps us gain visibility and helps us share our stories.